This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This weekend we're doing an old time radio grab bag. This will be old time radio grab bag number 11. That's where I take shows that don't fit our normal categories and just grab them out of the grab bag just uh, from my archives of shows that I have. And uh, I play these without any comment. I don't uh, spend a lot of time editing them. I try to get them clean. I take some commercials out, but sometimes I don't. And uh, what you hear is what you get. But most people seem to enjoy them. What we have lined up today is an episode of X-1. We're going to follow that up with a very popular game show from the 40s, Information Please. Then we're going to have an episode of the Craft Music Hall. And we're going to finish things up with the Lone Ranger. So that's our lineup for this week's old-time radio grab bag, number 11. And I hope you enjoy it. Oh, why can't I? I, oh, someday I wish upon a star Wake up with the clouds are far behind Be where trouble melts like a lemon drops High above the chimney top, that's where you find me, oh, somewhere over the rainbow, way up high. And the dream that you dare to, why, oh, why can't I? Okay, we're starting off with an episode of X-1 that was first broadcast on November the 30th, 1955, and it's entitled The Vital Factor. Countdown for blast off. X-5, 4, 3, 2, X-1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, presents... X... X, 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 X minus... minus, 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 minus one... one, one, one. Tonight's story, The Vital Factor by Nelson Bond. (laughs) 
I doubt that anywhere on earth there's a man or woman or a child who doesn't know the name Wayne Crowder. I doubt whether there's a human being who hasn't at one time or another used one of the Crowder products. The can opener or the razor blade or the patented tooth powder dispenser or the Crowder improved slideless fastener. In the magazines which write about men of business, Crowder was described as a man of ice and stone and ink and steel. No warmth to his blood. And a heart to pump, not feel human emotion. And he built a battery of buttons into his desk so that when he wanted something, all he ever had to do was press a button. And like genies springing out of the bottle, the proper personnel would come running. Yes, Mr. Crowder? Get me my engineers. Yes, sir, right away, Mr. Crowder. your engineers, sir. All right, close the door and get out. Now, gentlemen, sit down. Gentlemen, I want you to build me a spaceship. A spaceship, sir? That's right. I've decided that I'm going to be the man who gives space flight to mankind. Any questions? Sir, we can design such a ship. That part isn't too hard. Yes? But, but we've no way of providing the motor to power such a ship. When the ship's ready to fly, there'll be a motor. Sir, I... I don't like to contradict you, but you can't go ahead of the total technology of a historical period. It's like asking somebody in 1600 to build the internal combustion engine. You see, scientists have been searching for a motive power for spaceships for decades now without success. You'll have a ship, but we can't lift that ship from the Earth's surface. That is, not to the point of free flight at any rate. Mr. Crowder... <clears throat> Uh, you see, you'll be spending millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, perhaps, for nothing. What's your name? Phillips, sir. You're fired. Go down to the cashier and draw your pay and get out. What, sir? Get out. Nobody who works for me thinks of how much something costs. What? We use money. We don't let expense provide a rationalization for not beginning a project. All right, Phillips. I give you permission to leave. Right now. Any other comments? The ship will be built, of course, Mr. Crowder. The fact still remains, we can't power it. You design the ship, I'll find the motor for you. Where, sir? I don't know. But somewhere in the world, there's a man who does know the secret. I want that motor, and I'll root out the man who has the theory which will let us build it. How quickly do you want this done, sir? Yesterday. Yes, sir. Is there anything you need? We'll need a construction yard, sir, and certain machinery, and a great many materials, of course. Uh, labor force. Get them. Send me the bills. I don't want to be bothered with minor details. Yes, sir. And, uh, one more thing, sir. Phillips. Yes? We need him, sir. He's a top man on electronics. He's a vital cog in our team. I don't want Phillips working for me. That's clear, I hope. Who else in the country knows what he does? No one in this country, sir. There's a man in India, though. Get him. We've tried before, Mr. Crowder. He's working on an important project in his country. I'm not it... concerned with details. Get that man, pay him what he wants, but get him. Sir, you don't understand. If this man quits his job, that whole project will collapse. It means the welfare of many people, millions of people in his country. He has a high sense of patriotism. Buy that sense of patriotism. That's all. I don't want to see any of you again until you have a report of work in progress. Yes, sir. Miss Holmes, 
There's a man named Phillips going to draw his pay. I want two company policemen to meet him at the cashier's office and escort him from there directly off the premises, and I want them to be emphatic about it. Yes, Mr. Crowder. And notify the newspapers, the television, and the radio networks, the periodicals, and the scientific journals that I'll receive the press in my office this afternoon at 3.30. I have an important announcement to make. Anyone not here at 3.30 will be barred. And the publication or company he represents will not be given any further information. (laughs) Gentlemen, you can finish your drinks later. Gentlemen of the press and ladies, it's my pleasure to be able to tell you that I'm in the process of constructing a spaceship. Any questions? Did you say spaceship? That's right. That's what I thought you said. I knew the drinks weren't that strong. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Crowder, is this spaceship under construction now? It is. You solved the problem of motive force then? No, sir. Well, what sort of... You mean you have no means of propulsion for this spaceship? That problem is not solved as yet. (laughs) It will be. That's why I called you in this afternoon. I want you to announce that I have $100,000 in cash waiting for the man or woman who first brings me the basic idea for such a motor. I'll supply all equipment for research and construction, and I'll see that the rights of the inventor are protected and more than adequate royalties will be paid him or her. That's all I have to say now. Mr. Crowder, one more question, please. Yes? Do you have a name for this spaceship yet? No, not yet. Well, then let me suggest one. Yes? Crowder's Folly. (laughs) Quiet. All of you, quiet. What is your paper? The Daily Times, sir. Miss Holmes, inform the company police that under no circumstances is any representative of the Daily Times ever to be allowed on company property again. Strike that paper from the list of those to be invited to future conferences. It was Crowder's folly, but the word of what he wanted circulated to the far corners of the globe. It was known in the white ice block huts of the Eskimos and in the grass-thatched villages of Central Africa, as well as places less remote. And the Crowder office became the mecca and the heaven for the lunatic fringe of humanity. Their blueprints and scale models clogged its corridors. I told you I don't want these people in my office till they're screened. Now get out, get out! Every time I open that door, they surge in like a tidal wave. I have a progress report for you, sir. The ship is finished as far as we can go, Mr. Crowder. Certain additional construction can't be done now because it depends on the shape and mass of the engine, on the type of fuel, on the weight of that fuel. I see, all right. Lay off everybody we don't need. I've ordered that. Uh, Mr. Crowder, is it possible that no one will turn up with a motor? That's the one thing that's not possible. He will come. Money and determination will buy anything. Close the door on your way out. Yes, sir. Miss Holmes, 
Order the proper department to put a name on the forward end of the ship. I want letters in pure gold one foot high. The name of the ship is Crowder's Folly. Get it done today. The sun came up in the morning, and the sun set at night, glinting rose on the silver sheen of the hollow ship's skin as it lay in the yard. The golden letters on the prows spelled out the fury of Crowder for the world to see. A staff of 50 were employed as time went on in taking rust preventative measures to ensure the ship's well-being. The staff of 50 worked in three shifts around the clock, armed with oil cans and grease cans and other containers and sprayers of preservatives. In a year, the first experiment seemed ready to bear fruit, and a test was held. The atomic fission motor. In exactly 45 seconds now, we'll hold the test, Mr. Crowder. The sound you hear is our generators here, building up power to supply the motor by remote control. If this needle goes round to the part of the dial marked in red, there'll be an explosion. Are there any questions, sir? Proceed with the tests. Watch the needle, sir. 8,000, 8,500, 9,000, 10, 11, 12, 15. That's an overload now, sir. 18, 20. I don't know how much more it can... What happened? The generator blew out. What kind of a I beg your pardon, sir. The motor blew up. What are you talking about? I would have heard. You see, sir, it takes a while for the vibrations of an explosion to travel three miles and then reach through 15 feet of concrete. I see. Well, there are other experiments in progress. Let me know when they're ready for testing. Yes, sir. Mr. Crowder, the inventor of that motor had to be right with it, of course, during the tests. He had a family. The fool knew what he was doing. He understood the danger. He was paid enough to be able to afford insurance. The cost of insurance on such a project was prohibitive, sir. Well, if his wife was thrifty, she saved out of what he earned this last year. His salary was relatively small, sir. Most of the money went for the research. He should have demanded an adequate salary. I haven't stated on money. The fool failed. I have no further responsibility. Yes, sir. You want us to continue screening applicants? Of course. All right. Make a settlement on the widow. And don't turn anyone away if he seems to have the remotest possibility of success. I'm telling you, my man will come. Money and determination will buy anything. And strangely enough, Crowder was right. Because one day there came to his office a stranger, a small man. He looked even smaller in that tremendous room. He was an unusual visitor in that he carried no briefcase fat with blueprints or formulae. He was unusual in that he neither blustered, cowered, nor deferred to his host. He was a pleasant little stranger, bird-like of eye, movement, bright and smiling. Mr. Crowder, my name is Wilkins. I can power that ship you want. So? 
Of course, what I have in mind won't be anything like that meaningless, huge bullet your engineers built for you. Rockets are a foolish waste of time, sir. My motor requires a different sort of vessel. Where are your plans? Right here, in my head. It so happens that I am presently supporting half a dozen people who make the same claims. None of them have been successful. What makes you think your idea will work? Simple enough, sir. The common magnet. Huh? Electromagnetism. Utilization of the force of gravity, or its opposite in this case, counter-gravity. Oh, no. Oh, thank you very much. Now, if you'll forgive me now... Now, I'll... just one moment, Mr. Crowder. There's one thing more. This. Now, I've seen pieces of metal before. Thank you. How high from your desk would you say that I'm holding it? I'm very sorry, Mr. Wilkins. Now, do you want to leave or do you want to be escorted out? Now, this will only take a second, sir. How high from your desk would you say that I'm holding this piece of metal? A foot and a half, I'd say. And if I let go, then in less than a second, a fraction of a second, it should fall to your desk. Now, look, I don't want the surface of that desk marred. What will it be? You see, I have let go of the metal, is that right? Good Lord. Hmm. Many seconds ago, it should have crashed to the desk, am I right? Well, this is incredible. Well, if you want to speak to me anymore, I'll be right outside. But it hasn't fallen. That's right, sir. It hasn't fallen. It floats in the air. That's right, sir. It floats in the air. How do you do it? Why don't you call your engineers and ask them? I'll wait outside. Miss Holmes, get me my engineers. Immediately. All right, Mr. Wilkins, you're quite right. The piece of metal is apparently counter-gravity, and my engineers can give me no explanation. Thank you, sir. Now, what do you want? For my services? Yes. You've already set the price. To build a pilot model based on this sample, no great expenditure, a hundredth of the cost of your behemoth sitting out there in your building yard. Three other things. A workshop, expert mechanical assistance... And an answer to one question. What is your question? Why do you want so much to build this ship? Frankly, because I love power. Because I'm ambitious. I want to be the first to conquer space. Because if I can do it, it'll make me greater, richer, stronger than any man has ever been. I want to be the master, not only of one world, but of worlds. Mm, that's an honest answer. But is it the only one? You see those letters in gold on the prow of my ship? Crowder's Folly, that's what they named it. That's what they think of me. I want to cram those words down their petty little throats and let them eat mud. That's another answer. And that's all? That is as far as your thinking goes? What other answer is there to your question? There's my own answer. I want to leave this planet and go elsewhere, to Mars, perhaps, because there are strange wonders yet to be found. Because there will be scarlet sunsets over barren wastes. And in the star-strewn night, the thin, cold air of a dying world stirring in restless sighs across the valleys of the dry canals. <laughs> well, you may laugh out loud if you wish, Mr. Crowder. I would prefer that to the peculiar repressed smile you're now exhibiting. <laughs> you're a very lucky man, Mr. Wilkins, in that you have scientific talent. Because your talents as a poet are inferior and very sentimental. 
All right. You're a sentimentalist, and I'm a man of action. No matter. We can work together, you and I. Your workshop will be ready by morning. I don't need to hear from you again till you have something to show me. If you need to see me, call me day or night. I'll be available. But don't bother me with details, because I probably won't understand what you're talking about anyhow. If you need money or materials or personnel, just tell my engineers. You'll get it, or I'll know the reason why. Now, that's all. Thank you, sir. Miss Holmes, get me my engineers. Yes, Mr. Crowder? We have 50 men working on preserving that useless hulk out there in the construction yards. Lay them off. Well, the How ship many will others? deteriorate if we do that, sir. Let it rot. Lay them off. Yes, sir. How many other employees are still working for us on the project? About, uh... 3,000, sir, including the people working on experimental motors. Get rid of them. Sir? Get rid of them. Mr. Crowder, I, I never thought you'd drop this project. You were so adamant I'm on... I'm not the... dropping anything but Deadwood. You saw what Wilkins had to offer. He's my man. And the rest is junk and nonsense. Mr. Crowder, he might fail. We ought to have a minimum of protection against... I say he won't fail. I know the goods when I see it. The rest is nonsense. Several of the experimenters were making much greater progress than I thought was possible. There are great opportunities there. I'm not interested. Not only in the field of spaceships, sir. One man has a motor no bigger than a football, which will drive an automobile 24 hours on four cents worth of fuel. It's almost finished, sir. Not interested. It will be of great benefit to mankind, sir. Your name will go down... My name will go down in history for this spaceship. The profits in such a motor, sir... I have more money now than I even know how to count, and when I make my space flight, I'll have more than that. Yes, sir. You just lay everybody off that isn't needed. Give them two weeks' pay and... My thanks for a thankless job well done. And that's all. Yes, sir, I'll get it done, sir. Oh, one more thing. There's no need to let the folly rot. Dismantle it. Sell the basic materials we don't need. Salvage whatever will be useful to us. That's all. A year's work. Yes. In ten years or twenty years, then I do the same thing. That's why you're an engineer and I'm an executive. That's why you work for me. Because when I have to... I can be ruthless with my own mistakes. When a thing has lost its usefulness to me, I get rid of it. Well? I was just thinking, Mr. Crowder, what would happen to me if my usefulness to you were over? I've worked for you 20 years now. Uh, just don't give me any occasion to consider your usefulness terminated. That oughtn't to be too hard. Hmm. What? Uh, nothing, sir. I'll make the arrangements at once. Who are you? What do you want? I tried to stop him, sir. Well, speak up, man. My name is Jarvis Ustuli. I'm an electronics expert. Oh, yes, I remember. You're the Indian. Come in, come in. But do you want me, sir? I can never... Never mind, Miss Holmes. Just stay outside. Close the door behind you. Sit down, Vizustli. Thank you, no. I want to give you a gift before I leave. Oh? You leaving? I thought we still needed you. I resigned. Sorry to hear that. I'm told you're a good man. I want you to understand what's behind this gift. Huh? I was working on a power project in my country 
which would have meant a tremendous rise in the standard of living for millions of my people. I was unable to resist the money you offered. Well, had you resisted, even more money would have been forthcoming. I placed no limit on your worth to me. I understand. But you see, I did not come without a sense of guilt, because there was no one in my country who could take my place. I would assume that. And now I discover that what I did was for nothing. The spaceship on which I worked is being dismantled. That's right. So I have been corrupted by you at a whim. I think you have too much power, sir. I think you use your power for evil, selfish purposes. Selfish, yes. Evil, no. Only sentimentality is evil. I think otherwise. And so, in order that you shall not corrupt anyone else, I have this gift for you. Here you are, sir. <laughs> and just one more shot for good measure to make sure you're really dead. Good. Miss Holmes, there's a man on his way out by the name of Jarvis Rustley, an engineer. He's not to be molested. He probably won't stop at the cashier, so I want a check for six months' salary in advance mailed to his home address. The man uh, showed a certain quality of ruthlessness, which is deserving of recognition. Oh, and uh, have the chief of the company police bring me a new bulletproof vest. This one seems to have been dented in a couple of places. The new spaceship, according to Wilkins' plans, as executed by Crowder's engineers, was finished within four months. It was small, it was shaped like a disc. It gleamed brightly even in the smoky haze of an October sunset. Inside, Crowder and Mr. Wilkins, in a small cubicle at the heart of the machine, sat surrounded by many instruments of a complicated nature. Outside, huge crowds gathered to witness the test. They stirred and murmured, waiting restlessly, as inside the control room of the craft, Wilkins installed the final secret part he had not revealed to those who built his driving apparatus. Well, Wilkins, what's holding us up? Nothing new. Oh, sentiment, perhaps. A wish to look once more on Earth's familiar scenes. Yeah. Now the screening is removed. Look. Look at the people out there. Never mind looking out there. Let's leave that thing closed. You're a sentimental fool. Or are you afraid? Or did you decide at the last minute that your invention would work? It will work. Uh, sit down, Mr. Crowder. Uh, thank you. Uh, do me a favor. When I press this button, will you please press the button on the arm of the chair in which you're seated? I'll tell you when. Turn on your motor. I want to hear its roar and feel its tug as we cut loose from Earth's gravity and fly outward into space. <laughs> that might be a moment in which I'd share your sentimentality. Press your button now, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Wilkins, I'm beginning to distrust you. If this is all a hoax, when are we going to take off? You said at five sharp, and it's two minutes after five now. Well, do we move or don't we? Mr. Crowder, we're already moving. The button you pushed was to nullify the effects of acceleration. If you don't mind, sir, I'd like to open the screen again. Now, if you care to look, see for yourself. 
Wilkins. We're in space. Look down at the earth. How far we've come. Why, it's no bigger than a toy balloon. No, a dime. No, a firefly. Man, man, Wilkins, you've done it. Yes. I swore to be the first man to conquer space. And I've done it. It's a triumph of power and ambition. And sentiment. Blast sentiment. Your maudlin dreaming would have died unborn except for me. I made this possible, Wilkins. Don't you ever forget that. My capital, my forcefulness, my will. Look out there. Space. Stars that never were seen from Earth. This is only the beginning. We'll build a larger model. One great enough to hold a hundred men, a thousand, and cargo besides. Whoever wants to leave Earth this moment must come to me. I am the master of the planets. <sighs> All right, Wilkins. Turn back now. No. I said, turn back. No. Well, we've, we've proved the ship can fly now. Now turn back. I want to start work at once in preparation for the long flights to come. Not so. We will go on. What are you doing? Defying me? I'll break your puny little body into pieces. Can you control this ship, Mr. Crowder? Would you like to be stranded out here in space, just adrift in space without control? Would you like that? Turn back. No. What's the matter with you? Are you out of your mind? Oh, I am a sentimentalist, Mr. Crowder. Your money and ambition paved the way, that's true. But sentiment was the vital factor that sent me to you. Sentiment, sir. You see, Mr. Crowder, I wanted to go home. Home? Home? You are out of your mind. You will forgive me if I remove these primitive clothes? Who? Who? Who are you? Oh, it's all right, Mr. Crowder. I hold no special malice toward you. There's no need to be so terrified because you've had your first close look at a Martian. have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction. Tonight by transcription, X-1 has brought you The Vital Factor by Nelson Bond, as adapted for radio by Howard Rodman. Featured in the cast were Joe DeSantis, Guy Sorrell, John McGovern, Grant Richards, Louis Van Ruten, Richard Hamilton, and Florence Williams. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. From November 30th, 1955, that was X-1. And the name of that story was The Vital Factor. Now we have a really popular game show from the 40s, Information Please. The guest was Quentin 
Reynolds, who was the associate editor of Collier's Weekly. This episode first aired on March the 13th, 1944. Information, please. For the American Armed Forces and their allies, a special rebroadcast featuring the experts. And here to ask the questions is the well-known writer and literary critic, Clifton Fadiman. Tonight, we continue in our usual spontaneous manner, presenting as our board of experts the three regulars, John Kieran of the New York Sun, the pianist and composer Oscar Levant, and the poet and anthologist Franklin P. Adams. Our guest is the famous war correspondent whose new book, The Curtain Rises, is just out, Mr. Quentin Reynolds. Now, we're going to begin with a question from Norwin Hoffman of Scanitalese, New York. Is that right, Mr. Scanitalese? Okay, I knew I was wrong. That's a fine way to start this program. Something wrong right off the reel. Where, in fact or fiction, would you find a baby or babies who were looked after by a mining camp? Baby that's looked after by a mining camp, Mr. Adams. That would be by Bret Hart. That's quite right. Where would you uh, uh, find the story? What's the story called? I, it might be Mliss. It got might the be story. the outcast of Poker Flat. I don't remember. Name another story by Bret Hart and you'll get it. Mr. Kieran? I thought it was in the outcast of Poker Flat. I don't think so. That's the first time Kieran was ever wrong after Adams. The name of a mine. That's the name of a mine. Uh, I think it's the Luck of Roaring Camp. Luck of right. Roaring That's Camp. Right. Could That's I right. be right? That's mm-hmm. right. The Luck of Roaring Camp. Well, I can't give you full credit on that, gentlemen. Getting the author is not enough. We have to get two out of three, which means you have to get the next two. Where would you find a baby uh, looked after by a group of racing touts? Mr. Levant. Little Miss Marker. Uh, used to be Shirley Temple. She's bigger now. <laughs> yes, that's right. Damon Runyon wrote the story. That's right. Very good story it was. Pretty good picture. How does the, what's the plot there? Why did they take care of her? Because Adolf Manjou, who was a race... Uh, this is not personal, Mr. Manjou. He was a racetrack tout, or bookmaker. Yeah? I don't remember how he got the... I remember he was in a room laying bets and the kid was hanging around. Why go back so far? Oh. No. Well, they use they use the baby, or rather, the Miss Temple, as security for a debt. That's Mr. what they call a marker around a racetrack. If you don't have money, you give a man a marker if, if he'll take it from you. Oh, that's where the that's how the title arose. That's right. Good enough. How about a baby, or babies perhaps, who were looked after by a government? Where would you find them? Babies looked after by a government, Mr. Kieran. Find them in England, wards of chancery. Also in Russia. Go ahead. Uh. Is that right? Also in an Eddie Cantor picture once. The, the very... Well, there are, there are some specific babies that I'm thinking of who are at present being looked well, after. Well, that's the Dion uh, quintuplets in Canada. Yes. Uh, they're looked after. They're wards of the crown by an act of the Ontario legislature. Isn't there a movie, Mr. Levant, in which uh, babies are, are adopted yeah. by the state? Yes? There was one who was adopted even by better than the state. It was adopted by Ginger Rogers in Bachelor Mother. That was a good adoption. I like that. <laughs> I don't remember it. <laughs> Isn't there a newer one, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek? Oh, I, yeah. I haven't seen that. That was adopted by uh, a state, uh, governor of a state. It's a very funny picture, incidentally. Thanks very much. I'll There's a similar occurrence now in, uh, about babies, but we won't go into it. Don't do it. There we go. <laughs> How about this one from Milton Belasco of New York? Identify the following. Let's get two out of three. He lost at Gallipoli, but won in Britain. Who? Uh, Mr. Reynolds, is that your hand going up? Mr. Churchill. Mr. Churchill, yes. How would you prove the statement? Well, he lost the 
the Gallipoli campaign. It was his influence that prompted the British in the last war to carry that operation through, and it was yes. completely disastrous. Yes. And I guess but, we don't need any uh, proof about the He certainly part held of it. Britain together during the Blitz. You bet. Now, how about someone who won at New York but lost in Chicago? Won at New York but lost in Chicago, Mr. Levant? Uh, Jim Braddock. That's right. To Joe Lewis. Uh, won, uh... Max Bear at the, at the Long Island City. He won for Max Bear. Yeah, and he lost to Joe Lewis, but very good fight. In, in Chicago. Chicago. Very good. And how about one who lost in New York, but won in Houston? Lost in New York. It could be me. I played very well in Houston. Couldn't be you. <laughs> it could be, I think. Uh, Mr. Adams, is that your eyebrow going up? No. It's not Jesse Jones, is it? No. No. Well, we've got two out of three on this. It was Al Smith who lost the Democratic presidential nomination to John W. Davis in New York, but won in 28 in Houston, Texas. Well, that gives us two out of three and carries us on to this one from Mrs. F.M. Morrow of Minneapolis. Again, get two out of three. I'm going to describe three characters to you, one at a time. All of these imaginary characters always carried an umbrella. Can you identify them from the following description? I'm going to name some other article of clothing that they wore. Here's the first, who wore a very rusty black gown, rather the worse for snuff, and always carried an umbrella. Uh, Mr. Kieran. Father Brown. No, I think not. A very rusty black gown, rather the worse for snuff. Uh, Mr. Reynolds? Mr. Chips. I haven't read the book and don't know. It may be so. It is so. It is so. You don't say that... Fictitious character? Yeah, fictitious character. The one I have in mind is Sari Gamp in Martin Chuzzlewit. But inasmuch as Mr. Kieran came in first with Father Brown, I've got to call that one wrong. See I don't know, he didn't. One. All right, hold on a minute, and I'll prove it to you. Who wore a round hat with a shovel brim <laughs> and carried an ordinary umbrella, Mr. Kieran? Well, I don't think his gown was supposed to be uh, the uh, Le Denier Cree de Paris, you know. No, but I bet you couldn't prove that it was rather the worse for snuff. don't think he uh, used snuff, as a matter of fact. Now, who was the one who had a round hat with a shovel brim on his that head? That was my friend, Father Brown. Yes, where will you meet him, Mr. Kerry? Gilbert Keith Chesterton's favorite detective. Yes, a very entertaining stories by G.K. Chesterton. Now, how about an imaginary character who always carried a large umbrella around with him and wore an exaggerated stovepipe hat and a long black coat? Mr. Reynolds. The symbol of prohibition is drawn by Roland Kirby. Yes, that's right. The very good. world. Right. Uh, Mr. Adams, does that come back to you? That's right. Yes, it's a very famous character. Ladies and gentlemen, although it's not usually our custom at this time, I should like to make sure that all of you know who our guests are going to be uh, next week. And so I'm going to announce them now, as well as at the end of the program. We're kind of proud to have on our program next week two very distinguished senators. Senator Barkley of Kentucky and Senator Green of Rhode Island, and we're rather looking forward to next week's session. Now we're going to be, go on with the questions. Here's one from Stanley Haggard of New York. Again, get two out of three. If you overheard a group of soldiers and sailors talking about scrambled eggs, hash marks, and fruit salad, what besides food might be the subject of their conversation? Mr. Reynolds. A naval insignia. Uh, would they all be naval? That's quite yes, right. Yes, all of them. All of them. Let's, let's see if that's true. How about scrambled eggs, Mr. Reynolds? What does that mean? Aha. Uh-huh. That's gold braid on, I think, on a naval jacket. Uh, it's on the cap, on the, on the, uh, on the visor yes. of the cap. Is that right, Mr. Kieran? That's right. And what, what, is it, what does it mean? Uh, it would mean what rank? Well, it means an officer. Above what rank? Above, uh, above lieutenant. Above the rank of 
Begins with commander. Yes, above, I think above the rank of commander. No, commander wears scrambled eggs. He, de- he does have scrambled mm-hmm. eggs. Is that a new term, Mr. Uh, Reynolds? I, I don't think so. I think it's it's an used old one in the last war, too. All right, now yeah, suppose they were old. talking about hash marks. What would that mean, hash marks? Mr. Reynolds again. Well, they're the marks on the uh, warrant or petty officer's sleeves. And what do they mean? His rank. Well, not precisely rank, I shouldn't say, Mr. Kieran. One for each hitch. Uh, meaning? One for each full term of service which, in that branch. In that which would be how many years? Four years, three years. It three years. On what branch of... Uh, yes, I imagine it would vary somewhat. What, uh, Marines what you... wear nice big ones. <laughs> what, what, is the, what do you suppose the term hash marks comes from? It seems well, odd, got right? a lot of hash while they were serving those terms. It might have been. Maybe it means the increase in pay that comes with each hitch, which enables them to eat more hash, perhaps. How about fruit salad? Mr. Reynolds, uh, are you going to help I us don't, out that? I know it's a naval term, but I don't remember. Oh, I, I believe that's uh, the all the gold braid an admiral wears. No, I think not. That would be wrong. Service uh, ribbons. It's a uh, campaign, campaign ribbon. ribbon. And yes, I guess that would be military, wouldn't it, as, as well as any naval. of them, yes. Any, any yes. of these servicemen, yes. Well, that gives us two out of three. Try this one, gentlemen, from Mrs. Frieda Marshall of Overland Park, Kansas. Oh, this is just a little fun. Recite three lines, at least, about a toe... Or toes, T-O-E or T-O-E-S, Mr. Levine. Got rings on my fingers and so forth on my toes. Ringworm on my toes. <clears throat> That's the one, Mr. Adams. Uh, come and trip it as you go on the light, fantastic toe. That's very pretty. That gives us two toes. How about another toe? Make this a three toe. Toe, you may be beautiful. All right. No, 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 <laughs> no, mersey toes and dozy toes. Either. You couldn't use a whole foot, could you, Captain? <laughs> no, I won't take a foot. No, I want uh, another genuine toe or toes, Mister. Toe be or not toe be. <laughs> <laughs> ten baby fingers and ten baby toes. I'll take that. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I didn't hear you, Mister Adams. Uh, try this one, gentlemen, from Frank E. Eisenman of Arlington, Virginia, and let's get all on this. This is not a very hard question. With what country, in the course of our history, have we been? Allies twice, and at war twice. Mr. Kieran. Great Britain. Yes, prove it. 1775-1883-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1812-1
literary question. Uh, John, what is alliteration? Alliteration? Yes. Uh, making, uh, using words that have the same general alliterative sound. Mm, yes. Uh, Usually the first two initials have a similarity. Oh, in, no? No, it's the whole thing. The, uh, the moan of doves and immemorial elms and murmur of innumerable beings. Well, that's, that's also onomatopoeia. That's onomatopoeia. But uh, yeah, try it. I think we'll get it as we uh, answer this question. Give me an alliterative line of prose or verse based on the letter F. An alliterative line based on the letter F. Oh, you ought to be able to pick one out of your hat, gentlemen. Uh, a line of poetry? A line of poetry would be very nice. Doesn't that come to you? Well, I'll give you one. From Shakespeare, Mr. Kieran. Uh, full fathom five, uh, thy father, father lies. There we have an alliterative line with Fs. There's a I got one. Mr. Levant. Anything further, father, by Groucho Marx. I'll take that. Very mm. good. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. There's one from the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Now, how about one... An alliterative line based on the letter S. This can be a popular song. It can be... Sweet mis- Sister uh, Susie's sewing socks mm. for soldiers. Yes, I think it was shirts, wasn't it? What's the difference, Kip? <laughs> They'd look alike. Mr. Adams? I can't think of one. You can't think of one? Uh, Mr. Levant, you had one? I've forgotten everything. I don't know anything. Else. Sister Susie's sewing shirts for soldiers is a very good one. How about one uh, based on the letter P? Mr. Adams. Peter Piper and so forth picked up... A- Peck of pickled peppers. <laughs> yes, you do that beautifully. Yes, that's uh, two out of three on that. Perhaps not a very hard question. Now, gentlemen, see what you can do with these. Here's one from T.J. Ross of Sacramento, California, and I think we should get all on this. What important possession of the Allies was threatened when the Axis passed Mojaisk? When it passed Mojaisk, Mr. Reynolds. Moscow. Moscow was 54 right. miles from Moscow. Yes, that was a, a very critical point. Do you in mind the war. if I uh, Not a bit. correct your pronunciation? How do you Mojaisk. say Mojaisk. How long did it take you to learn it? Well, I was in Russia twice. That's about all I did learn, that one word. <laughs> Mojaisk? Mojaisk. Mojaisk, with the accent on the second syllable. Right? Yes. It sounds easy the way you say it. Uh, what important possession of the Allies was threatened when the Axis reached. Maybe you better pronounce this, Quint. El Alamein. Uh, Mr. Reynolds. Uh, Alexandria. Alexandria. Why was that so important? Uh, Well, it was only, uh, I think, some 50 miles or 60 miles from Alexandria, which, of course, was our big base in that part of the Mediterranean. Yes, and it might, if they had taken Alexandria, what would have been the uh, possible course of events after that? Oh, well, they'd been a cinch to control the Mediterranean, for one thing. Yes, so both ends of the Mediterranean. Then, Mr. Levant? Oh, I was just yawning, but uh, that would have been uh, the beginning of a pincer movement as far as India and Japan's concerned, but that's complicated. And well, you aren't yawning at all. Yes, I was. Well, you're the only man I've ever known who knows how to yawn by raising his hand. <laughs> uh, I yawn uh, with a circular movement of my shoulder. <laughs> what important possession was threatened when the Axis approached Port Moresby? Uh, Mr. Kieran. Australia. Australia, yes, quite right. Well, that gives us three out of three. And sends us on to this one for Mrs. Bernice T. Nowak of Buffalo. This, again, is a musical question, gentlemen, and I think we should get all. You're going to hear three songs which should suggest to you three characters of fiction. Uh, Legree, Legrand, and Lestrade. And you are to tell us which song suggests which and why, and they're going to be played one right after the other. Is that clear? Three characters, Legree, Legrand, and Lestrade... And you've got to get the songs arranged in the right order. 
All right, Mr. Kahn, go ahead. We'll play them one right after the other. Will you help us to unscramble that musical omelet? Yes, uh, the last one would be Uncle Tom. Now, why do you say that? Because it was down on the levee. It was? That's wrong. I think it is wrong. Mr. Levin? Can I unscramble that? You unscramble it. The first one, you want it in rotation? No, I'll take it anyway. Well, Mean to Me, obviously, is Simon Legree. That was the second one played. Yes, Mean to Me is Simon Legree, the The cruel... The third one was uh, We're in the Money. The third one is We're in the Money. I don't know who's in the money by your names. Uh, How, uh, Mr. Kieran? That would be Legrand. Who was Legrand? Legrand was the master uh, uh, of the plantation down along the coast of Georgia, Savannah, somewhere around there, who found the treasure buried by the pirates by the use of the gold bug in the tail by Poe. That's quite right. Now we have only one left to unscramble, Mr. Levant. First one's Mr. Adams, uh... Something about a policeman's lot is not a happy one by Gilbert and Sullivan. Yes, and who would be the... the uh... I don't know those names. Lestrade. Uh, Lestrade. Who was Lestrade? Detective Lestrade. Uh, where would you find him? Well, he's in... Uh, uh... Probably in Lindy's. No, no. A lot of the... <laughs> Agatha Christie, is it? Or... No. No. Uh, Mr. Adams? I don't know what... He's in some of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Oh, yes, that's right. Well, that was a nice job of unscrambling it after Mr. Adams had scrambled us up a bit. I think that... Sends fifty-seven dollars in war bonds. I don't know those to tunes. Mrs. And a set of the Britannia. What'd you say, Mr. Adams? Didn't I don't know those tunes. That's what I'm beginning to think. <laughs> Try this one from Leonard Gaynor of New York City. Can you name a devil of fiction, or the movies, or the theater? Uh, the first devil wears a bellhop's uniform. Bellhop's uniform. This might be from the movies. Mr. Reynolds, is that your hand going? Yes, the play uh, Night Must Fall. There is no devil in Night Must Fall. I don't think there is a devil in Night Heaven Must Can Fall. Wait? No. There's a devil in that. But there was yeah. a murderer. Do you mean literally a devil? I mean a real devil, yes, Mr. Uh, a bellhop? Yeah, a bellhop's uniform he wears. It's a devil in Cabin in the Sky. He wears a uniform with three rows of gold buttons marked Hotel Hades, I think. That's one wrong. Now, how about a devil uh, who wears an angel's wings? This might be from... Uh, green Pastures? Is, uh, heaven Can Wait don't, Again? Never, I don't think there are any devils in Green Pastures. They're all angels. Uh, Mr. Kieran? Devil with angels? Uh, devil who wears angels' wings. This would be from classical literature. Paradise uh, Keep Lost going. by Milton. That's quite right. Yes, Satan and all the other fallen angels wear the wings to indicate that they were once of, of angelic estate. And now can you name a devil of fiction, or the movies, who wears a cutaway coat... Heaven can wait. Trousers. Finally, heaven can wait. He came around. To I it, couldn't didn't wait, but heaven. <laughs> who plays? Who plays the part in that picture, Mr. Levant? That big. Uh, I don't want to say fat fella. He's not fat. Larry no, Krager. No, just big looking. Larry Krager. Larry Krager does a swell job, and heaven can wait. Well, that gives us two out of three, and sends us on to this one from Miss Ruth Harjet of Charlotte, North Carolina. If a football player at the front were describing a battle in these football terms, what type of action would he be referring to? Let's get two out of three on this. If you use the term mousetrap, which is a football term, what sort of uh, tactical movement, Mr. Kieran? 
Why, he would let the foe come through at some uh, point and then smack him from the flank. Yes, uh, infiltration in order to cut him off. That be right, Mr. Reynolds? I don't yes, know whether that indeed. term is used where you've been wandering around. No, they don't use it. Uh, do they use the term end run or would, or uh, what yes, would that indeed. mean? Yes, Mr. Reynolds. General Mark Clark is said of the action at Solano. It was the longest end run in history. And what, would, what did he mean in military terms? Well, he that? meant that instead of striking across the Straits of Messina, we took the long way up the coast. Yes. And uh, skirted all of the places where the Germans, we hoped, would think we were going to land. Yes, and it worked pretty and well. It worked. Uh, really a wholesale flanking movement. That's right. Uh, now, how about the Statue of Liberty play? What would that mean in military terminology? The Statue of Liberty play. Mr. Curran. Well, that would be a, a holding action in one part while uh, somebody uh, grabbed the ball and ran around and hit at another place. That's pretty good, yes. I well, think it's that pretty one. good football. I don't know how good military <laughs> strategy it is. Mr. Reynolds? It's what the Army calls a diversion. Yes, uh, you divide... The, it's a feint, isn't it, which feint. divides the enemy's forces and you catch him unprepared on the real objective. Well, that gives us three out of three. Try this one from Victor Herman of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And what work of fiction, or perhaps work of the screen, does a husband revolt against an annoying wife by going hunting? He goes hunting as a uh, symbol of his rebellion. Where would you find that? Is that with Danielle Darrier? Pardon my French. I'll pardon it. No, it isn't. Was it Craig's wife? Uh, no, oh. it's uh, Mr. Lerner. Not Lern? Craig's wife. Is that in one of the Wagner operas? In what? Wagner. You've got me there. I well, don't know. He hunt know. all the time between the plays. Uh, Rip Van Winkle. Rip Van Winkle, Mr. <laughs> Reynolds. Yes, that's quite right, Mr. Reynolds. He goes out hunting, doesn't he? Squirrels and shooting wild pigeons as a, any, as a means of getting away from uh, Mrs. Van Winkle. I suppose his wife was named Miss Van Winkle. Katrina. Katrina Van Winkle. How about a husband who revolted against an annoying wife by taking her adopted child back to an orphanage? Taking her adopted child back to an orphanage. This one I don't myself remember very well. Does that come back to you, Mr. Adams? Well, it's in the movie Woman of the Year. Doesn't Spencer Tracy oh, take yeah. that? Is that right, Mr. Levant? Yeah. It's not an adopted child. It's... Uh... One of those emigrate children due to the war who comes here, and they're supposed to give them pseudo-parental shelter till the war's over. Yes, a little Greek refugee child in the movie. Spencer Tracy takes the refugee back because the child is lonely and neglected by whom? By you, as far as I'm concerned. No, no. <laughs> by uh, by uh, the Catherine woman of the Hepburn. Year. <laughs> by the woman of the year, Catherine Hepburn, yes. And in what work of fiction, <laughs> or play perhaps, does a husband revolt against an annoying wife by breaking a... A mantle ornament. That's Craig's it, wife. That's Craig's Craig wife, Mr. Wife. Adams. That's how does that play end? I've never seen it. I know how it ends. Yes, Mr. Levant. When he leaves, she naturally, like all women, resents it, and she takes a bouquet of flowers, encircles the floor, and the petals drop, and everybody uh, gets that stuffed nose from yeah, I in the audience, and they all sneeze and get sinus. And he breaks the mantle ornament. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, that gives us two out of three on that, and that's all we'll have time for. Thank you, Mr. Reynolds, for the friendly visit this evening. Next week, Mr. Adams and Mr. Kieran will greet as their guests two distinguished United States senators, Senator Alban Barkley of Kentucky and Senator Theodore Green of Rhode Island. We think we'll have a particularly interesting session next week. Information, please, was presented especially for the American Armed Forces and their allies. That was Information, Please, as originally heard on March the 13th, 1944. Coming up next, we have an episode of the Craft Music Hall that was first uh, played on January the 11th, 1945. Bing Crosby was the host, 
and the guest was Spike Jones and the City Slickers. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day, someone waits for me. Yes, it's Bing Crosby in the Kraft Music Hall with John Scott Trotter, his orchestra and chorus, Eugenie Baird, the Charioteers, and our special guests this evening, Spike Jones and the City Slickers. Well, uh, Bing, what are you going to do tonight? Well, I'm going to open up with something lively, Ken, and then probably bend a ballad or two. What are you up to? I plan on selling a few items. I see. I'll hold up the piano and you're going to shake the rug, huh? Sour down. All right. As I was walking down the street, down the street, down the street, I met somebody who's mighty sweet, mighty fair to see. I asked her, would she like to have a talk, have a talk, make with the talk. All the fellas standing on the walk, wishing that they were me. Mama, mama, let me dress up tonight, dress up tonight, dress up tonight. I got a secret going to dress up tonight, going to dance by the light of the moon. I'm going to dance with the dolly with a hole in the stocking, while her knees keep knocking and her toes keep rocking. Dance with the dolly with a hole in the stocking, dance by the light of the moon. Mama, put the cat out, cat out. I'm going to dance with Dolly with a hole in a stocking while our knees keep knocking and our toes keep rocking. Gonna dance with the Dolly with a hole in a stocking. Gonna dance by the light of the moon. I'm gonna dance tonight. By the light of the moon Of the silvery moon By the light of the moon We're gonna dance tonight By the light of the moon By the light of the moon Of the silvery moon Dance with the dolly with a hole in the stocking While her knees keep a knocking And her toes keep a rocking Dance with the dolly with the hole in the stock. I'm gonna dance, dance by the light of the moon. I'm gonna dance by the light of the moon. Thus the saga of the nifty with the nick in her nylons. Music is one of the strongest bulwarks of the politica del bien vecino, or as I sometimes say around Glenn Bill Billingsley's health farm, the good neighbor policy. And a fine example is the Pan-American hit, Cuando Vuelva a Tu Lado. What a difference a day made. Twenty-four little hours. Brought the sun and the flowers 
where there used to be rain My yesterday was blue, dear Today I'm part of you, dear My lonely nights are through, dear Since you said you were mine What a difference a day made There's a rainbow before me Skies above can't be stormy Since that moment of bliss That thrilling kiss It's heaven when you find romance on your menu. What a difference a day made, and the difference is you. We're building now into a little tempo, which brings us on the charioteers and a tale about Tabby. Scat, who's that? Who's that? Strutting by and he looks so wise. Scat, who's that? Who's that? Just a sharp ass and not just high. Someone ought to put you in the nose. Cause after all, all is said and done, there ain't but the world. There's really just no one He walks around with a righteous air Because he knows that he ain't no square He never misses a smart affair That's Tabby the Cat He makes rounds every single night And let me say it's the strangest sight He pats his foot when the rhythm's right That's Tabby the Cat He's a playboy of the alley Running around doing the town And cause he calls Count Busy Pally All the kittens swirl their mittens down He wears a coat that's a cat's meow He blinks his eyes and he takes a bow Because he knows when to holler Ow! Tabby the cat Telling the news, he hangs around till dawn or later. Just in case you throw the pair of shoes, he always bets on the winning team. He knows the inside of every scheme. He leaves the milk, but he takes the cream. Tabby the cat. I conclude by saying he's a killer from Manila. He's a gator from Decatur. He's the best back capper of all mouse catchers. Woo! Mighty moving thing, men. We proceed now, continuing our change of pace, and we discover Eugenie Baird. You're singing uh, Making Believe, aren't you, Jeannie? Yes. Tabby got your tongue, Jeannie? Well, it's big, right? I'm making believe that 
know you're so far away Making believe I'm talking to you Wish you could hear what I say And hear in the gloom of my lonely room We're dancing like we used to do come true I'll whisper goodnight turn out the light and kiss my pillow making believe it's you Very lush delivery, Jeannie, of a fine song. You know, there's a rare musical treat in store for us and the person tonight of a man whose unique orchestral style is a household word, four letters, Jones. Seriously, it's with great gusto that I greet that amazing maestro, my phenomenal friend, Spike Jones, and his He Should Live So Long Till It Sounds Like music. <laughs> Complete with city slickers, assorted slickers. Here, welcome, Spike. Speak. Well spoke, and uh, thanks, Spike. Spike, as self-appointed spokesman for the nation's music lovers, I would like to pose the question that's on everybody's lips, from Carnegie Hall down to Jerry's joint. They all want to know, how did your group come into being? Well, Bing, uh, we started with 65 pieces. 65 pieces, mm -hmm. isn't it? Sure, oh, yeah. and uh, when I got all the pieces together, I had four instruments. <laughs> <laughs> like which? What'd you have? Well, we play bottles, auto horns, mm -hmm. pipe links, pots and pans, and... Well, if you call that music, I'm Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Don't expect me to hold you up, Bing What do you mean? <laughs> uh, on the level, um, what did you think the first time you heard us play? First time I heard you play? I thought you were releasing a riveting machine for active duty <laughs> Well, we are a novelty outfit, you know But uh, how would you describe our kind of music? I don't think I'd describe it as kind <laughs> But for the type of music it is, would you call it uh, A1? V3 <laughs> You know, Bing, I'll have you know, we've, uh, we've got many loyal radio listeners all over the country. Oh, incontrovertibly. Yes, and uh, when they dial in, you know the one thing that they want us to play? Hard to get. <laughs> you know, if you're not careful, I won't tell you what I was going to tell you, if I tell you. Oh, I'll be good. Well, Bing, I know the past year has brought you a landslide of honors and awards. Yeah. But it's my privilege, and it's certainly an honor to present you with still another. Oh, Spike, you shouldn't have. This uh, handsome bronze plaque, Bing, on which is engraved plaque of honor oh, awarded to Bing Crosby as the most popular male screen star by Box Office Magazine. Well, shouldn't have. Well, thank you, Spike. That's wonderful of you, and I want to thank Box Office Magazine. But just so the evening won't be a total loss for you, I'm going to hit you with something. My friend, it's my pleasure to give you the official tidings that you also have won a national poll. And for the third consecutive time, Downbeat Magazine has once again singled you out as one of the entertainment world's royalty. And in their behalf, I shall be glad to crown you King of Corn. There you are. And now, Your Majesty, here's a house for you and the Slickers rocking us with a little royal razzle-dazzle featuring Carl Grayson and his happy Nova Scotians. 
You ready? Knock it. Sharing a delightful chat This and that And cocktails for two As we enjoy a cigarette <coughs> To some exquisite chansonette Two hands are sure to slyly meet Beneath the serviette With cocktails for two My head may go really But my heart will be obedient With intoxicating kisses For the principal ingredient Most any afternoon to five so glad we're both alive Then maybe fortune will complete Her plan that all began With cocktails for two Lovely, intimate thing, that was. <laughs> many, many thanks, Spike. Cool 
by the blue of your eyes. More and more, I find it more than thrilling. To share this dream that needed fulfilling More and more I'm less and less unwilling To give up wanting more and more of you Decade is a long time in contemporary popular song history. And for this evening's medley, we go even back farther than ten years. A baker's dozen, we go back twelve. Back to a trio of songs from a sassy little cinema called College Humor. Your lightning calculators will have figured out the year we mean. You remember that one, Ken? Why, sure, don't you? You can tell it because that's the year Franklin D. Roosevelt became president. Oh, please don't confuse me, boy. Please. 1933 was also Who the year knows? representatives <laughs> of France, Great Britain, and Germany were welcomed to Rome for a peace conference. Yeah. And uh, the first Soviet ambassador was welcomed to the White House. That was the year 130 million Americans went wild over those three little pigs. You know, I could practically tear my wig out right now over three little pork chops. <laughs> Favorite walk, though, that year of many a college guy and gal was down the old Ox Road. There's a famous thoroughfare I've heard collegiates say. I'm not referring to Piccadilly. It's not 42nd Street. It's not the Rue de la Paix. Nor is it Market Street in Philly.
Ask most any college, Romeo, to complete your education, you must go down the old ox road. Though you'll never find out where it is by looking in maps, with a little investigation, you'll discover perhaps that this old tradition's not a place, but just a proposition called the Old Ox Road. The Old Ox Road. Ox Road could be any romantic spot, a country highway or a moonlit yacht. Could be in the parlor where the lights are burning low. It could be in the movies in the very last row. Down the old dark road. In the magic of the moonlight, you are thrilled with delight. As the leaves that flutter o'er you whisper lover tonight. Why keep waiting and debating when you know it's time for mating on the old ox road? The old ox road. Ah, good old 1933, when Chicago's Century of Progress exposition revealed many scientific wonders. Now let us be fair, Kensington. You're forgetting Sally Rand. Thing. I was only a child at the time. Well, of course, I've forgotten. That year also, income taxes were a big headache. From that, you can tell what year it is? <laughs> what a... Don't badger me, Lillis. That was the year when the nation was humming smoke gets in your eyes. 1945 being the year when they wish it would. <laughs> yes. 33 also marked the... Uh, steady. 14th birthday of an ambitious youth who decided that he'd learn to croon. 14 and 5 is 21, 27. That's right. Learn to prove If you want to win your heart's desire Sweet melodies of love inspire Romance Just murmur Ba-ba-ba-ba-boo and when you do, she'll answer, la da da dee da dee dee And then the man in the white coat will come and get both of you. <laughs> Learn to crew. You'll eliminate each rival soon. If you're heading for a sunny honeymoon, learn to cruise. 1933. Jockey Jack Westrope rode 297 winners in one year. Oh, who's his agent? I must have that boy. <laughs> Fast lad. Equipoise rolled up total earnings of $320,000. 320000 That's what I call a horse. What do you call yours? No comment. <laughs> 1933. In Long Tin Pan Alley, nothing was more popular than Lazy Bones. Not even T-Bones? Not even T-Bones. Well, how do you like that? Every picture that year seemed to have its moon song. And our lunar tune is Moonstruck. 
You have me spellbound, bewildered by your charm. Heaven or hell bound, I must be in your arms. Tell me, am I only moonstruck? Or is this really love? Each time you kiss me, you thrill me to the skies. Why should such bliss be so hard to analyze? Tell me, am I only moonstruck? Or is this really love? What is this? That attracts me, distracts me Just like a mysterious game What is this strange new flame I cannot seem to name Though I endeavor I just can't see the light Will it last forever or only for tonight? Tell me, am I only moonstruck? Or is this really does it for the old all this evening, friends, but we'll be with you the same time next week with some more of the same, along with our special guest, the distinguished composer and conductor, Duke Ellington. Goodbye for now. Musical next Thursday at the same time with Bing Crosby, John Scott Trotter, his orchestra and chorus, Eugenie Baird, the Charioteers, and our guest, that aristocrat of jazz, pianist and conductor-composer Duke Ellington. Broadcasting Company. Well, you've been listening to the Kraft Music Hall that was originally produced on uh, January 11th, 1945. That one starred Bing Crosby as the host and had Spike Jones and the City Slickers as the guest. And we're going to finish things out today with an episode of The Lone Ranger. It was first broadcast May 31st, 1946. The name of this story is The Silk Neckerchief. Here it comes. horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger.
With his faithful Indian companion, Tonto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. Nowhere in the pages of history can one find a greater champion of justice. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse, Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again. Come on, Silver. Let's go, big fellow. Are you Dan Reed, the 14-year-old nephew of the Lone Ranger, was returning from a visit to friends in Benton. Dan always enjoyed the novelty of a train ride, and he sat looking out the window at the ever-changing scenery as the train wound its way among the hills east of Rockville, its destination. The voice of the man in the seat beside him finally attracted Dan's attention. Traveling alone, son? Yes, sir. I got on at Benton. Oh, so did I. Thought maybe you were coming through from the east somewhere. No, sir. I live out here with my friends. They'll meet me in Rockville. I went to Benton for a visit. <laughs> Looks like you did a bit of buying while you were there, too. Oh, guess you mean this little package. It's a neckerchief I bought for one of my friends. It's silk, too. Silk, huh? <laughs> well, you must have been saving your pennies to buy a present like that. <laughs> it didn't cost much, but it did take all the money I had with me. I had just enough left to buy my tickets back to Rockville. It sure is surprising to meet up with a kid that'll spend his last bit of money on a present for a friend. Instead of buying something for himself. You must think a lot of that friend of yours. I do. Want to see the neckerchief? Sure. I'd like to have a look at it, sir. Well, unwrap it. There. How do you like it? Well, now. That's what I call the right smart-looking neckerchief, sir. Yes, sir, that's mighty fancy. There was only one like it in the store, so I took it. Your friend sure ought to be mighty pleased to... Something must be wrong the way they're stopping so quick. Maybe there's cattle on the tracks. Can't see what's up front from this window. Might as well go have a look to see what's going on. It's a holdup. He's got us covered to them guns. They're robbing the express car. Yes, there ain't anything we can do about it, sir. You can see if the passenger's got anything worth taking. Right. Hand over your money, everybody, and no funny business. They ain't satisfied to take the gold shipment from the express car. They gotta rob us, too. Hey, give me that. I'm gonna take that stick pin, too. There'll be a posse on your trail, mister, after we get to Rockville. Shut up. Hey, you don't have to be so rough. How about you, kid? Oh, I haven't any money, honest. What's that, a silk neckerchief? Wait a minute, that's for a friend of mine. <laughs> this should look better on me. Come on, Joe, let's get going. Right, nothing worth taking in here. Why? This is an outrage. We'll report it to the sheriff in Rockville. There they go. Here comes the conductor. Calm down, everybody. Calm down. They've gone. We'll move on now to Rockville. Did they get anything, conductor, from the express car, I mean? They sure did, son. Those thieving coyotes just got away with $20,000 in gold. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You have good time? Yes, but wait till I tell you. The train was held up and robbed. Hey, where's the sheriff? I've got away with $20,000 in gold. We'll have to get a horse here. Oh, that's not good, Dan. Come, Scout and Victor right over there. Hello there, Victor. Sure did miss you. Uh, he miss you too, Dan. Steady, boy. We'd better hurry to camp with the news. Uh, get him up, Scout. Get up, Victor. A short time later, Dan and Tonto reined up at the Lone Ranger's camp. Oh, 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 Well, Dan, did you enjoy your visit in bed? Yes, sir, I did. Outlaw, hold up train, Dan. Come on, Kimasabi. Outlaws? That right, Dan? Yes. They put logs across the track, and when the train stopped, they robbed an express car of $20,000 in gold. And they robbed the passengers, too. Dan lose gift him bring for Lone Ranger. That's right. I was bringing a real silk neckerchief, a white one to you. But the outlaw who came through the coach took it. That's too bad, Dan. Anyhow, I appreciate the thought that prompted you to buy it. Oh, uh, where'd the holdup take place? About ten miles east of Rockville. They were forming a posse in Rockville to go after the outlaws, and we left there. I see. Here, Silver. Did we go look for outlaws, Kimasabi? We'll go look over the ground, Toto. Dan can wait in camp until we return. Right there, big fella. Thank you, Silver. There are plenty of places in the hill for outlaws to hide. I know. We won't be long, Dan. Come on, Silver. Let's count. waited in camp several hours. Then, becoming restless, he decided to ride Victor into Rockville to see if there were any news of the outlaws. It was late afternoon when he arrived in town. And as he reined up in front of the general store, a short, stocky man approached a horse that stood at the hitch rack. Oh, oh, Victor, oh, boy. Oh. Hey there, kid. There's enough horses hitched to the rack now without having you crowding in. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll go somewhere else. Ah, forget it. I'll be riding right out. Just wanted to tell you so as you won't get the habit of crowding the hitch racks. That's all. Thanks. Someday that stallion of yours is liable to get in a kicking fight if you crowd in too close. Easy, fella. Hey, what are you sitting there staring at? Oh, uh, I was admiring your neckerchief. What about my neckerchief? Why, it, it looks like real silk. So it looks like real silk. What about it? I, I was wondering where I could get one like it, that's all. I haven't seen any like that in Rockville. There ain't any like it in Rockville, kid. A friend of mine give this to me. Don't see many like this one anywhere. I know. Steady, boy. He's seen it again sometime, kid. Get up. Victor, I just know that's the neckerchief the outlaw took from me on the train. The posse went east to look for them. But that man's riding west. Steady, boy. <coughs> you and I are going to follow him. Maybe he'll lead us to the outlaw's hideout. Come on, Victor. white silk neckerchief rode a trail that led into the rocky hills to the southwest of town. Dan, certain that the white neckerchief was the same one the outlaw stole from him, followed the man at a safe distance. It was just about dusk when Dan reached the top of a bluff and looking down, drew rein suddenly and cautiously. Oh, Victor, oh boy. Oh. From this point on the trail, Dan could look into a camp directly below. 
It was situated on a wide ledge about 20 feet down from where Dan was. Dan noticed that the ledge was about 100 feet wide, dropping off on the other side to a creek in a canyon below. Dan dismounted quietly and moved in some bushes at the edge of the bluff in hopes of hearing what was being said in the camp. Let your flat up rock this, will you? Sheriff and his posse are searching the hills east of the town. They'll be hunting in them hills forever. There'll be a good sign on it since we found a creek clean around the town over to this hideout. And we were smart to figure that out. Getting an earful, kid? What? I didn't hear you come up behind me. You were too busy listening to what they were saying down there. That it? Well, no. You see... Shut I... up. Hey, Hanley. There's a kid up here spying. Bring the little snake down here, Pete. Right. Come on, kid. Get moving. You're going down and do some explaining. Well, but my horse... Get going. I'll lead your horse down. You'll sure be sorry you came snooping around Joe Hanley's camp. Mighty sorry. Following a steep and narrow rocky path, Dan, with the outlaw behind him, soon approached the group in the camp. Here he is, Hanley. He was crouched in the bushes up there listening. This is the stallion he was riding. Good for you, Pete. Hey, that's the same kid who was asking me about this silk neckerchief. He must have followed me out here from Rockville. Yeah, that's the kid I took that neckerchief from on the train. So he trailed you out here, huh? Yeah, smarter than I thought. He's not so smart. Come here, kid. What do you want? Just this. That's for snooping when you have no business. You'll be sorry when my friends catch up with you, you big bully. I know you're Joe Hanley, the outlaw. I've seen handbells on there. What? Now, listen, man, this kid knows too much. That's right, he does. You better not let him get away. Have the posse after us in no time. He ain't getting away, don't worry. The posse doesn't find you. I know the Lone Ranger well. Oh, hey, Hanley. Sir? Did you hear what the kid said? Yeah, yeah, I heard. What said about the Lone Ranger kid? Speak up. I know he's been looking for you, Joe Hanley. He trailed you to this territory. He doesn't know yet that you and your gang robbed that train. But he'll find out when he catches up with you. How do you know so much about the Lone Ranger? Because he's... He's a friend of mine. When I don't go back, he'll search for me. Listen, Hanley. That masked hombre was the reason we had to leave Pecos County. I don't like the idea of him hunting for us here. I know. We can't leave this kid go. He'll get us in trouble. And it's dangerous to keep him with us. What are you going to do with him? I have an idea. Bring him over to the edge of the canyon above the creek. Come on, kid. Let me go. You're hurting my arms. Stop pulling away or I'll bust you. What are you going to do with him, Hanley? You'll soon see. The walls of that canyon are about 15 feet high. The water in the creek's running in a strong current. You're getting the idea, Springer. Stop here. Hey, you don't dare throw me into the creek. Oh, don't we? Take that silk neckerchief off, Springer, and tie his feet together. Right. I'll give him a 50-50 chance by leaving his hands free. Yeah, so he can claw at the walls of the canyon. <laughs> Here's the neckerchief. Now, hold him. I got him. You let me go. I'll give you a hand. I'm enjoying this. I'll be drowned if you throw me in there. Even without my feet tied, I wouldn't have a chance. Gee, no, ain't that too bad. There. Feet are tied. Now, let's lift him and heave him over. Got him. Right. Now, let's swing. So he'll land out in the middle. No, no, please. Right, let's go. go. One. <laughs> Two, uh, three. Uh, hey, look at his horse. Hey, look out. He's heading straight to the creek. That stallion jumped right into the creek. Yeah, kid gets near, he might get away. Gun him, gun both of them. 
continue our story. The outlaws immediately began shooting at both Dan and his horse as they struggled in the water. Come on. Think we hit him, Hanley? I'm sure I winged the kid. You're out of sight now around the bend. He won't have a chance. Now, come on. Let's get some grub. I'm hungry. Meantime, the rushing waters of the creek carried Dan and Victor downstream. The valiant white stallion, son of the great horse Silver, struggled to get near Dan. Finally, he was alongside. And Dan, one arm bleeding from a skin-closed bullet, reached up and grasped the pommel of the saddle. Swim, Victor! Swim! We, we've got to make it! Within a short time, the horse and boy were carried to a spot where one wall of the canyon gave way to a rocky beach. Victor struck bottom with his hoofs. Then, dragging the exhausted Dan along with him, the brave horse slowly but surely made his way to shore. Oh, Victor, oh, 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 Darkness had set in when Dan finally opened feverish eyes and lay for a moment staring at the stars. Slowly, realization came to him and he struggled to rise. Get to camp. Dan fell back, weak and exhausted from loss of blood in the great struggle with the rushing waters. Then he realized his feet were still tied together. Turning on his side, he pulled his feet upward and managed with slow and painful movements to untie the silk neckerchief that bound them. Oh, oh. If I... If I can only... There. Victor. Victor, if I can... Oh, oh it's no use. I can't get up. Victor. Come, come here, boy. Victor bent his head and nuzzled Dan's neck. With an effort, Dan tied the silk neckerchief to the bridle and spoke again. Home, Victor. Go, go home. Get the Lone Ranger. Go, go home. Meantime, having returned to camp, the Lone Ranger and Tonto were preparing supper when Dan's horse, Victor, galloped in and stopped. The Lone Ranger immediately saw the silk neckerchief tied to Victor's bridle and knew its significance. Mounting Silver and Skulk, the masked rider of the plains, and Tonto hurriedly left camp with Victor leading the way. Get him up, Scout! Oh, Silver! Within a short time, they arrived at the rocky beach where Dan lay. Oh, Silver, hold on, hold on, Scott. Oh, Steady. Easy, big fella, easy. The moon's so bright, it's easy to... Look, Tonto. Steady. Uh, Dan. Him hurt. Dan. Dan. I knew you'd come. I knew that to bring you. What happened, Dan? That silk neckerchief. I thought that perhaps... Tied oh, my feet. Threw me into the creek in the canyon. To jump in. He saved my life. I'll strike a match. You've been shot. If I get my hands on those dirty killers, I'll... It's just skin scratch. Me soon fix it. Thank heavens for that. 
We'll get Dan back to Camp Toto, and he can tell us where to find those outlaws. We'll get the sheriff's posse and round them up if it takes every man in Rockville to do it. It's Joy Hanley's gang. Hanley, yeah. I've trailed him a long way. Now I have a personal interest in catching him. Joe Hanley will wish he never laid eyes on you or that silk neckerchief, Dan. You can count on that. At dawn, after the Lone Ranger had received directions from Dan, the masked rider of the plains and his Indian companion met the sheriff and his posse not far from camp. Quiet, man, quiet. I'll vouch for the masked man. You take my word for it, he's working with the law to run down Joe Hanley and his gang of outlaws. Now listen to what he has to say. Men, Joe Hanley and his outlaw gang are a desperate group of killers. I know the exact spot in the hills to the west where they have their camp. It's on a wide ledge in the Creek Canyon. They can hold us out for a week. They'll have a lookout. They'll spot us. How are we going to get out of here? Oh, wait, wait. Listen to me. After holding up that train yesterday... Hanley and his gang threw the posse off his trail by following the shallow part of the creek for several miles. When it began to get deep, they took to a side trail until they reached their present hideout on the ledge in that canyon. Quiet. Let the masked man finish. Now, we'll split up into two parties. One group will ride straight to the canyon through the hills. The other group will follow the shallow part of the creek just as Hanley and his men did. That's probably the way they'll try to escape when they spot the party riding through the hills. Well, what are we waiting for? Yeah, let's get going. Yeah. All right, man, all right. We'll split into two groups. I'll lead some of you up the creek. The rest of you follow the masked man through the hills. We'll get Joe Hanley and his gang this time or know the reason why. Later in the outlaw's camp... What's the matter, Springer? Hey, Hanley, there's a posse coming along the trail through the hills. Well, that be... Round up the men. Get them started up the creek, hey. What are you going to do, Henry? I'm going to try to hold them back to give the rest of you a chance to get ahead. Now get going. Oh, what's the road? Oh, 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 the ledge below us where Henry and his men were camping. They've gone. Uh, then go up creek. Meet up at the sheriff. Yes. What are we going to do? Let's get after them. The sheriff might need our help. We'll follow the men. By the time they meet the sheriff and his party, we'll have them between two fires. All right, let's get going now. Yes, it's steep, too. They could have picked us off one by one if they'd have stayed to fight it out. The sheriff has met Hammond's gang. Come on. I don't want any of them to escape. Come on, come on, boy. Come, come. short distance up the creek, the Lone Ranger, Tonto, and their party of townsmen came upon the scene of a battle between the sheriff's posse and Hanley's gang. Hanley's men had moved to some rocks on the bank of the creek, and as the two groups of lawmen moved in, they fought desperately. Except to come this way. That is, unless he. You've got things under control here, Sheriff. 
I'm going to find Hanley. Run, Silver! Ranger urged the fleet-footed stallion along the trail which skirted the canyon and led to the place where he and Tonto had found Dan. Come on, Silver! Within a short time, he reached the rocky beach below the canyon where Dan had managed to reach shore the night before. Oh, Silver, oh, my, oh. Right there, big fella. <laughs> Hastily dismounting, the Lone Ranger moved Silver behind a projecting rock. Then, taking his lariat, he made his way up the big rock and stood waiting. From his vantage point, he could look down to the mouth of the canyon. In a short time, the Lone Ranger saw what he was waiting for. A crude raft was making its way down the creek, carried along by the current in the narrow canyon. There seemed to be nothing but large tree branches on the raft. Then the Ranger raised his gun. You can't get away, Hanley. Realizing his plan had been learned, Hanley cast aside the tree branches, and crouching on the raft, he returned the Ranger's fire. The Ranger counted six shots, then, standing in full sight, he whirled his lariat over his head. And as the raft drifted past the rock, he threw the lariat. Whipped out and like a living thing, dropped over Hanley and pulled tight. Hey, let go! I'll get you for this! You'll have your chance, Hanley. Moving along in pace with the raft, the ranger went down to the rocky beach. Then, slowly but surely, pulled the raft into shore. Thought you'd wait a bit, then drift out on your gang, eh, Henley? Take this rope off me. I might have known the masked man was mixed up in this raid someplace. There. Now, Henley, you want to settle things with me. I'm going to give you a chance. What do you mean? I'll set my gun belt aside. There. You seem to have lost your gun. Now, come on, Henley. So you want to see what you can do with your fish, huh? All right, I'll take you on. Good. The Lone Ranger and the tough Joe Hanley exchanged blow for blow there on the rocky beach where Dan had lain exhausted and hurt. Hanley was a hard man and a tough fighter, but he soon found he had taken on more than he could handle. I'll show you. I'll knock your head off. I'm waiting, Hanley. For another moment, the battle raged between the two men. Then the Lone Ranger put all his effort into two blows to the chin. That's for Dan, and this is for good measure. Yes, Toto. Never felt better in my life. Say, is that Hanley? That's Joe Hanley, Sheriff. He's all yours. Yeah. <laughs> all that's left of him, you mean. <laughs> Good thing you figured out he was making a getaway by himself. I knew since he wasn't with his men, the only other way out of that canyon was by water. The raft seemed logical. I can't figure out why you went to the trouble of licking him with your bare hands. Why'd you do it, stranger? So that he'd remember not to go around stealing silk neckerchiefs, Sheriff. Come on, Toto. We have to be going. Ah, here, gun belt. Thanks, Kimasabi. Here, Silver. Well, Hanley will tell you where he hid the gold, Sheriff. That is, as soon as he wakes up. Steady, big fellow. Ready, Toto? Uh-huh. Be ready. Come on, Silver. Get on, scout. Well, now, that don't make sense. The silk neckerchief business, I mean. The masked man didn't have one on worth stealing. The silk ne- neckerchief of his was sort of the worst for wear. It was kind of ragged to me. <laughs> but then who's to say just why the Lone Ranger does the things he does? Is he the Lone Ranger? <laughs> yes, he sure is. No wonder Hanley got taken. We've been telling him nobody can cross the Lone Ranger and get away with it. That's one thing you can say again, outlaw. He's a mean man to fight against. I'm glad to have the Lone Ranger helping me instead of again me every time. <laughs> Thank you.
you have just heard is a copyrighted feature of the Lone Ranger Incorporated. And that was The Lone Ranger, as originally broadcast May 31st, 1946. The name of that story was The Silk, excuse me, The Silk Neckerchief. Folks, that is going to do it for Old Time Radio Grab Bag number 11. Hope you enjoyed our selections. We'll be back probably in a couple weeks with another grab bag. And in the meantime, we do invite you to listen to our podcast shows. On Monday, we play an Old Time Radio uh, comedy. On Tuesday, we play an Old Time Radio drama. On Wednesday, a mystery. And on Thursday, a western and then on uh, the weekend, we do an archive show, which we'll be putting up tomorrow. So if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, just go any place where you can listen to podcasts and look for the best old-time radio podcast with Bob Pro. And if you can't find it there, go to our website, bestoldtimeradio.com. Sure are glad that you spent some time with us today. I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, we will be looking forward to you on down the road. This is Bob Bro, and I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me.
to be righteous May you grow up to be true May you always know the truth And see the light surrounding you May you always be courageous Stand upright and be strong May you stay Stay.